I remember it very clearly. My, my whole life kind of just flashed in front of my eyes. In the early 1990s, Asia One was living in Denver when she went to a hip-hop show with some friends. It was a theater group, a company that was a hip-hop theater company, the first of its kind, called Ghetto Original. Ghetto Originals were re-establishing hip-hop through their performances, and their members, like Pop Master Fable, were spreading the word at their dance events. But we just trying to bring people back home with hip hop. We was born and raised right in the birth grounds of this. So, so we knew, we know exactly what true hip hop is. They were creating a theater show. And so they were doing some soft performances and they came to Colorado. The, the era that was like 91, um, hip hop was experiencing a renaissance period of different thought and perspective. It was really interested in furthering the conversation about um, what it means to be uh, a black person, a brown person in America. As someone growing up in the 70s, um, a multicultural and ethnic person who um, just didn't necessarily feel like I really fit in anywhere um, growing up in Denver not really knowing what I should believe, what I should be, really my purpose in general. Asia had a front row seat for the Ghetto Originals performance. It was a seamless blend of fast-paced footwork and gymnast-level flips, spins, tucks, and whirls. This was a style of dance that the media in the 1980s called breakdancing. But no one within the hip-hop world actually called their art breakdancing. To them, it was just breaking. And as she watched the breakers, Asia realized that she'd found a piece of herself. I was sitting there and I was watching the show and it was like, it just hit me. I was like, you know, I want to do this. I want to be like that. I want to do what those people are doing. And it would just, it was that, it was such a sure feeling that there was no way I could turn it off. It was like, it was like a calling. I was determined to be a practitioner of this art form. Asia was so determined that she decided to move west to San Diego. San Diego, at that time, that had a really unique underground hip-hop scene. Once I got over there, it, was, it all started. She met hip-hop dancers, the Breakers, who called themselves B-Boys and B-Girls. And Asia became a B-Girl herself. And that's when she adopted her B-Girl name, Asia One. Asia was community-oriented. One of her initiatives was starting a mentorship program for young people, inspiring them through hip-hop. Breakers were often kicked out of clubs and harassed by the police, treated like outsiders who didn't belong. So she wanted to empower them and fight for them. So this desire to do something for this community that was starting to be disenfranchised, the B-boys and B-girls, took root. I, I had the idea to say, hey, why don't we create an event that can pay homage to these people. And it will be a hip hop event that will be paying respects to this dance form. We thought I was like, yeah, we should call it the B-Boy Summit because it just reminded me of those old movies where you'd see like people climbing those mountains and sticking a flag at the top of the peak of the summit. And to to me, it's it, it really was more like, you know what, we're going to, lift this up so high that it can never be brought down again and it will forever be preserved and realized and actualized. 
The first B-Boy Summit Asia organized in 1994 attracted a few hundred people. By the late 90s, Asia and the organizers couldn't squeeze everyone into one arena. Lines to get in snaked around city blocks. In 1999, Asia moved the summit from San Diego to Los Angeles. And on the first day, it did feel like breakers had reached the peak of the summit. 2,000 poured into Venice Beach for the first day. It was really like a beautiful uh, way to show how far we had come, actually. We finally felt like, wow, we made it. Like, we're in new territory now. We're going to be accepted over here. But then, on the summit's second day, something shocking happened. Local news reports painted a troubling picture of what had happened. Violence broke out Sunday as police moved in on a hip-hop exhibition that attracted 1,500 people. There was pushing and shoving and eventually arrests as police tried to end the show. A show hundred police officers wearing riot helmets and wielding batons and beanbag shotguns showed up and quickly cleared the area where the summit was taking place. As the organizer of the event, Asia was charged for inciting a riot. The police took her into custody. They arrested about, probably about eight to 10 of us, um, me being one of them. I was arrested and charged with the riot. And, um, you know, it was, it was so surreal, that entire experience, because, you know, they put us in holding for a while and the, they were so mean to us. They were cursing at us. They were spitting on us. They looked at us as like horrible criminals. And after feeling the high a day earlier, Asia found herself in a jail cell, a moment that was supposed to be about just how far breaking had come became one that showed her how many barriers she still had to overcome and the perceptions she had to change. I just remember like when the lights went out and they, 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 shut, they shut this other jail cell in the front. And I was sitting there in the jail cell and when they locked the cell, I remember when they turned off the lights, I just, I started crying. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and the cost of greatness, both on and off the Olympic stage. Today's episode is about breaking, an art form, dance, and cultural movement that will soon grace its biggest stage yet, the Olympics. In 2020, it was announced that breaking would be an Olympic event in 2024, but the reaction was mixed and the most vocal critics of its ascendancy to the Olympic stage weren't the game's purists, but breakers themselves. Their distrust came from decades of misunderstanding, misrepresentation, and even denigration, which breakers experienced at the B-Boy Summit in 1999. To many, the recent Olympic debate is part of an ongoing question, whether breaking can preserve its integrity and heritage as an art form while gaining popularity as a competitive sporting event. Breaking joining the Olympics is, in some ways, the pinnacle of this tension. But before we unpack the complicated emergence of breaking as an Olympic sport and return to that shocking moment in 1999, let's go further back to the beginning of breaking. 
essentially breaking starts in the Bronx within the African-American community in the Bronx in the early 70s. Um, and it's the foundation for what becomes hip hop. Saruj Abrahamian, known as Midas to other B-boys and B-girls, has been a breaker since the 90s. Saruj is also a historian with a PhD in dance studies. You know, this dance is in, intertwined with what is called hip hop culture and music, you know. And at those early parties, there was no rapping. It was people partying, teenagers. And then at a certain point, you knew Herc was going to play these records and it was going to be a show. Herc is Clive Campbell, better known by his stage name, DJ Cool Herc. He's credited for laying a foundation for hip hop in the Bronx in the 70s when he started creating breakbeats. That's basically when a DJ takes a few seconds from an existing song where the drummer's breaking down the rhythm and then makes a loop out of that break. So Cool Herc, who was, again, the, considered the founding father of hip-hop, his main innovation was taking two records that had a percussion section, a climactic, upbeat, you know, rhythmic section, usually funk records, and he was known for looping those two records together to keep those portions of the song going longer. But that's the foundation for hip-hop, those beats. You know, to this day, what producers sample to play for rappers to rap over are based around a foundation of what are called break beats. DJ Cool Herc mastered his technique with his bare hands, repeating the breaks over and over again, and letting people know it was time to show their moves. This was a part of Almost every Herc party at the climactic peak part of the night, he would put on these records, he would get on the mic. He, he coined the term B-boys and B-girls, which means break boys, break girls. And he would say, B-boys, are you ready? B-girls, are you ready? And rock, rock the house. And different things on the mic, you know, to, to, to shine attention to the dancers. Breaking has evolved through the decades, but the foundation remains. Today's breakers build on what Saruj calls the blueprint of his predecessors. Breaking has a, a, a blueprint, which I would categorize as three core elements or three core factors to the dance. The first is the upright dancing, which is generally called top rock. Top being upright, you know, you, before you hit the floor, rocking just meaning getting down, dancing. And there's a, there's a whole art form to that, you know. Then there's the transition to the floor and floor movements. That's generally called down rocking. You're on hands and feet on all fours and, and going in a circle usually with steps, you know, with your feet and and, um, and so on and so forth. And then obviously like spins, the floor moves, which is generally what captivates people the most and is most recognized about breaking. And then the final component uh, of the blueprint is freezes, which is basically like posing. And usually that's on the floor. It could be in the air with handstand type freezes. You could actually come up and do an upright freeze on your feet. Um, but there is some sort of ending, you know, so it's almost like a blueprint with a, a beginning, middle ending. From these core elements, breakers create dances that are all their own. The core of it is the creativity. You know, you, you're passed down these blueprints and these movement foundational vocabularies from previous generations. But people have the freedom to to interpret these things in their own way within the dance. And really that's the point, is to, to, to flip them, quote unquote, flip them, interpret them your own way, have your own phrases and combinations and signature movements. So you just continue to see the dance evolve and it gets more and more difficult and more and more creative, you know, with all kinds of concepts. Breakers become known for their signature moves 
And as they linked their moves into routines, their art form evolved into something else, a competitive endeavor. You have a history of competitive interaction and, and dance within the African-American community, like going back to huffing and tap and swing dancing and step, step contests. I mean, there's always been an element of dialogue and exchange through quote-unquote competition. And at these early parties, people would enter a circle and sometimes people get challenged, you know? And so they would go head-to-head. Dancing was just one element of the hip-hop culture that was forming in New York in the 1970s. Dancing, DJing, rapping, and graffiti art. It was all intertwined. Elements of it already existed. Obviously, dancing, music, art, poetry, you know, that that always existed, especially in the African-American community. But Herc gave structure and and a place to go for teenagers to to, to cultivate these things, you know. We call it a culture, you know, uh, a subculture, a cultural movement. The culture began to emerge from the underground when the New York Alt Weekly, The Village Voice, published an article in 1981 with the headline, Physical Graffiti, Breaking is Hard to Do. And once that article came out, it was like a whirlwind of media coverage. You know, people who read the article followed up and tried to find out more. Then the next thing you know, you have... You know, ABC News doing segments on it. You have Lincoln Center in New York doing a, a big show. And then the movies came after that. James came to watch us dance. I don't dance for anybody but myself. That's a moment from the movie Breakin', part of the mid-1980s wave of films that helped put Breaking on the map. You, you had what developed, what nowadays a lot of people refer to as the exploitation movies in the 80s and, and just the commercialization of the dance, like... It, it was everywhere, you know, cover of, uh, was it Time Magazine or People Magazine? It really is like the first element of hip hop that became commercialized, you know, even before rap was a big hit. I mean, breaking was a big sensation in the 80s. But the version of breaking portrayed in the 80s and the 90s was barely recognizable to real breakers like Saruj. Sometimes the portrayal was even downright offensive. This was a dance that was denigrated to, to, to a large extent. I mean, you could look at footage of TV shows like The Simpsons. All right, here's the 411, folks. Say some gangster is dissing your fly girl. You just give him one of these. Different, like, movies in the 80s and 90s, they would always show breakdancing like a joke. You know, like, it's a funny kind of, oh, I'm, I'm doing the wave or doing the robot or spinning on my head. But the media didn't seem very interested in the nuances of hip-hop, dance, and culture. So you had breaking that comes from New York. You have popping that comes from... Uh, the Bay Area of California, the West Coast. You had locking that comes from Los Angeles. These were all dances that um, had a culture of their own. So when the media saw people doing these different dance styles, they lumped them all together under this misnomer of breakdancing, which is not only an artificial word, it's a, it's a belittling way to depict these dances. They're not the same. They have their own rich history. So it's not just like, oh, these kids are breakdancing. Like, no no care to want to even understand what's happening, you know? It's just kind of, we can name it whatever we want and package it how we want. Most troubling to Saruj was how the media framed the story of what they called breakdancing. So a lot of stereotypes and misconceptions about these kids are gang members who are fighting instead of dancing and all this nonsense, you know? So it's like a very much filtered through like a criminalized lens of young people in the ghetto or hood who are expressing their machismo and trying to solve their problems through dance and all these narratives that, that aren't 
that true. You know, there's elements of truth in them, but they're exaggerated, and and um, you never get to see the 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 value and the meaning behind this dance for people's lives. It's always presented as a spectacle or something sensationalized. The caricatures of breakdancing as a fun fad in the 1980s came and went like jelly shoes and swatch watches. But the stereotypes that these portrayals had amplified remained. And that created problems for the breakers who were devoted to hip-hop culture. People didn't understand hip-hop. People, that was during the 90s, late 80s, 90s, when there was like this war on drugs, um, this idea that rap music was somehow responsible for gangs and this hip-hop stuff and baggy clothes where it would criminalize you. After Asia moved to San Diego in the early 1990s and became a leader for the breaking community and an activist, she found herself under the watchful eye of law enforcement. There was a lot of undercover police surveying me and watching me. And I was working, I worked for San Diego Youth and Community Services. Everybody was being profiled back then based on what you were wearing and listening to. That's why B-Boy Summits in the 1990s were so difficult to organize. So it was, (laughs) we would have to sugarcoat it so much. We'd have to just be like, yes, this is a cultural arts festival and you know, but the minute we let him know that rap music was going to be being played or it was like that, you know, we'd have to get all of these additional permits if they'd even be like, OK, but, you know, the permits alone, you'd have to get the fire marshal permit and you'd have to get the permit at the, from the police department. Yeah, those were always challenges. It was just like people don't realize how hard it was to have these events. And that's why there were so few of these events that happened, to be honest, around the United States. It was the government and the community at large made it really, really hard. By 1999, Asia was so worn down by San Diego law enforcement that she moved to Los Angeles. Her first B-Boy Summit there in 1999 was a massive an inspiring gathering of breakers from around the country. But on the second day of the summit, things took a terrible turn. There was a dance event permitted on Venice Beach where police arrested a nearby man who was tagging a wall. Upon seeing the crowd gathered, he called for backup. Then things got really out of hand. They're claiming that I incited a riot. I didn't incite anything. They can't blame me for doing that. Asia Yu was one of the organizers of the hip-hop concert. She blames the police for getting the crowd all worked up. They blame her for not having proper permits. She showed us some copies. This is the payment. This is the signature. Asia was interviewed a day after spending a night in jail. Asia told us she'd been released after the mayor of Compton saw the news and quickly posted the $10,000 bail. But the problems didn't end there. She said the city threatened to find her $5 million for property damage. After this high-profile incident, Asia and the breaking community received a groundswell of support. The ACLU offered to represent Asia in her battles against the city. And a California state senator, Tom Hayden, penned a scathing letter to the Los Angeles Police Department for their actions. It turns out that Hayden's son was at the event and showed his father footage that clearly captured police overstepping. I was there for that as well. Saruj was attending the summit. He was a young, unknown breaker at the time. In retrospect, shows the situation, you know, that uh, this dance has gone through, you know, as far as being 
uh, denigrated, policed, criminalized, uh, treated as a joke. You know, like I said, in our generation, people looked at breaking like, oh, that's played out. You know, and a lot of that was because of the media and how it was treated. So, yeah, that that event was definitely like a, a turning point milestone event for me as a dancer, just because of where I was in my dance, but also culturally in the scene, seeing things like that happen. In the late 1990s, breaking was no longer in the headlines or being propped up by Hollywood. And the ugly incident in L.A. felt emblematic of how the powers that be really felt about the breakers and their community. But after the B-Boy Summit, Saruj and other breakers were only more inspired to see their movement grow. And it turns out breaking's biggest moment in the spotlight and its biggest test was yet to come. As we noted earlier, breaking wasn't just a form of expression. There was also fierce competition baked into it. Battles between B-boys and B-girls. And as time went on, breaking's growth would come from its competitions. The competition aspect, the battle, that was, you know, something that was always part of the dance. In the 90s, especially late 90s, early 2000s, you started seeing like formalized competitions where... There would be judges, anybody could sign up and you make it through the brackets and you know, almost like tournament style competitions become be, started becoming an element of breaking events, you know, like a central element of it. You know, and later companies started getting involved like Red Bull, Monster and whatnot. The inaugural edition of the Red Bull One World Championship, the Super Bowl of breaking, took place in Beale, Switzerland in 2004 where a raucous crowd sat jammed inside a darkened sports arena and looked on as two breakers took the stage in the competition's final round. The first runner-up at the Bieber World Championship, official member of the Jive Turkeys, representing the U.S. of A. Ladies and gentlemen, Oh! So in 2004, I won the first Red Bull BC1 World Championship in Biel, Switzerland. Uh, against my good friend Ronnie. And that was kind of a game changer. That's Omar Davila, a professional b-boy. After winning that first Red Bull World Championship, he became such a successful competitive breaker that he reached a new level of stardom that was mind-boggling to him. When I started, it was just like a fun thing to do. It's like the, you know, what all the cool kids in the, you know, in the neighborhood were doing. You know, some of my older cousins were doing it. It was free to do. You could kind of do it anywhere. And so when I first started, it was really just, just for fun. And that's it, nothing else. I took myself from doing starting something on a piece of cardboard to traveling all around the world with this dance. It went from doing something in the neighborhood, doing something in the garage, in the gym, to all of a sudden um, competing at Wembley Arena <laughs> in front of like, 4,000 people and LL Cool J is, is hosting the event and Slick Rake is performing. You're probably asking at this point, what exactly is a breaking competition? It generally involves a series of dance battles. Dancers don't know the music ahead of time and have to improvise on the spot. Then the judges score them. But first, everyone gets together to let loose. So prior to the competition starting, you're going to have what is called ciphers. Um, and it's no different than, than going out and social dancing, right? You go to, you know, a place to dance and you're having a good time. 
um, and there's circles where you have all of these competitors and uh, you know b-boys and b-girls warming up and just vibing and having a good time you get to really express your personality uh, your emotions your feelings then things get down to business once you get to the competition phase of it they can be uh, a top 32 bracket a top 16 bracket or a top 8 bracket uh, for these competitions they are one-on-one -on -one competitions so it's head-to-head so it's basically the dance version of, of March Madness. Competitions are broken down into rounds, and the decisions are made by anywhere from three to five judges. Omar has been a judge as well as a competitor. You're looking at the originality, the musicality, the dance, the foundation, the you know power moves, basically all of the ingredients that it takes to make a b-boy and a b-girl. And you're gonna have people who are very seasoned, and then you're gonna have upsets, right? You're going to have people who are going to come in and, and it's just their moment. It's just their night. Uh, you know, they're going to knock out the maybe the favorite dancer and then, you know, the entire bracket changes. And with good music, a good DJ, it's going to be like electric in the air, you know, very energetic, fun. Anyone who thinks breaking is just dancing will quickly change their mind after watching a competition. For starters, breaking is incredibly physical. I mean, think about if you've ever been on a run and you've done sprints or maybe you're, you're doing sprints up hills, you're like, all right, I'm going to do, you know, 30 seconds to a minute sprint as hard as I can, right? As hard as I can, push as hard as I can. And then I'm going to rest for 30 seconds and then I'm going to do it again. And so your heart rate is like through the roof and you are sweating and it's physically taking a toll and it's, it's demanding. Breaking is unique because you're not just running sprints, you're using your entire body. So you're lifting your entire body mass, body weight, right? And then you're con contorting yourself and throwing yourself and landing in all these weird positions that physically, like humans are not, we shouldn't be doing. So there's a lot of wear and tear involved, like a boxer going to a boxing camp or a MMA fighter. I would just compare it to the demands of any other professional sport. For that reason, breaking often straddles the line between art and sport. Within the breaking community, there are groups focused on the performance, while others are connected through competition. And in 2016, breaking as a competition received its biggest boost. News broke that breaking was on its way to making its debut at the 2018 Youth Olympics, an international event for teenage athletes organized by the International Olympic Committee. We just started seeing these news reports like Washington Post or CNN saying that breaking is going to be in the Youth Olympics. And this caught everybody pretty much off guard. There was always this discussion in the air of like, is this an Olympic sport? But people were generally against that idea. You know, I, mean, I don't even know of anybody that like advocated for that, you know, ever. Saruj dug in more to how this had happened. He was immediately surprised by how breaking was being characterized. I just noticed this word dance sport being used regularly in them. People saying dance sport as breakdancing got added to the Olympics, which was like weird. I'd never seen those two terms used. And I know what that term dance sport means. It's a specific label that refers to ballroom dancing. So I, seeing that more than once in certain articles made me like curious and wanted to research what's going on here. And as I researched just a little bit, you know, online research, I, I, I took me to the World Dancewear Federation webpage 
eventually and you could see their press releases on their webpage taking credit for breaking being in the Olympics, which was like mind boggling. It was mind boggling because prior to this, the World Dance Sport Federation, whose dance disciplines range from the boogie woogie to salsa, had no real connection to breaking. Saruj was taken aback that this had occurred seemingly without any consultation with breakers. And as he suspected, there was more to the story. A lot more. The origins of the World Dance Sport Federation, or the WDSF, are rooted in a dance form that is, in many ways, the polar opposite of breaking, ballroom dance. The more he looked into the WDSF, the more Saruj believed that the organization was trying to use breaking as a stepping stone toward getting ballroom dancing finally recognized by the IOC. We reached out to the WDSF for comment, but did not hear back as of this recording. This entity has been trying to get in the Olympics for since at least 1990, you know, almost three decades, and failed. They have no more hope of getting in the Olympics. So they're using breaking as their Trojan horse. Saruj started a petition, get the WDSF's hands off hip hop. More than 2,000 people signed it. To Saruj and other signees, it was clear. The WDSF was just the latest entity using breaking for its purposes. Why would we accept their authority over us? Like, for what reason? So that's the message, you know, it's like one of autonomy and not being basically colonized culturally. Saruj was appalled, but he wasn't exactly surprised. He knew, based on his own experience, that breaking would be far from the first dance to be culturally misrepresented. What is ballroom dance? Where does the rumba come from? Where does so-called jive come from, foxtrot? Like all these dances they do come from working class, black and brown communities. And what do they do to them? They strip them of their aesthetics, their names, their history, and they present them as dance sport, this athletic. We're not just a social dance, we're athletes and trained professionals. And they change the, the whole purpose of the dance and the, the way it's done is like totally unrecognizable to people from the communities where these things come from. That's cultural colonization that people have been talking about. And so this is a danger that breaking will be going through that. The Youth Olympics can serve as a testing ground for an event the IOC is considering for inclusion in its main event. And breaking's debut in Buenos Aires, where two DJs spun tunes in an outdoor basketball court in the heart of the city, was a smash hit. A year later in 2019, it became official. It was such a big deal, the Today Show covered the announcement. Well, if you think skateboarding at the Olympics is cool, wait until you hear what was approved just last month as a sport for the 2024 Paris Games. Breakdancing, or just breaking. Breakers were on their way to the biggest stage imaginable. On the other hand, what they did was still being portrayed by mainstream media as a novelty. But there's also money at stake. Saruj sees the benefit of more money and sponsorships for breaking, but he raises important questions. Who gets that money? And who makes decisions about the future of competitive breaking? I think the bigger issue is like governance and autonomy and money, you know, and, 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 and also credibility. Like, like, how are you able to maintain the, the integrity of something you kind of no longer control? You know, it's, it's in someone else's hands. 
I'd rather have people from the community involved who know something, you know, than ballroom dancers who know nothing. There's a lot of just trial and error, you know, I will say possibly some mismanagement in leadership. It was, it's, it's been a very bumpy ride, you know, to be quite honest. But fast forward, you know, through, through, through all that, <laughs> and we formed the breaking division of USA Dance, and that's uh, Breaking for Gold USA. Last year, Omar joined Breaking for Gold, a group of breakers within USA Dance, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, USOPC, recognized sport organization. Omar won't be at the Olympics to compete. He'll be there to advocate for the communities who have brought breaking to this point. He understands the tension between breaking as a sport and art, but he believes that breaking can be both. And ultimately, the Olympics will give breaking a platform it's never had. It'll be history in the making, you know? And with my background and, and, and being a world champion, it, it validates all of the work, the time, the effort that I've put into this, that we have put into this, that Breaking for Gold is putting into this, that the WDSF is putting into this. You know, everyone's supporting, you know. Um, it'll really validate what we've done. And it'll just take the, the breaking platform to, to another level. Omar believes that at the end of the day, breaking's Olympic moment will be a positive and possibly transformative moment. And I think that it's really going to captivate the, the general public, the general audience, you know. Even if they didn't care for, for breaking prior to that, is that those stories, what I'm looking forward to in, in the breaking competitions is going to be who ends up being that first you know, those first medalists, you know, gold, silver, bronze. Of course, you know, I'm from the U.S. I'm hoping someone from the U.S. wins, right? Without a doubt. Because that'll be monumental. Hearing people's stories. I think that's what's going to be really engaged and really captivating, you know, internationally at a national level. Is I've heard some of these stories. You know, I know some of these people. They're my friends. We've mentored some of these people. And those stories and, and some of the struggles that some of these individuals have, have gone through, if they can make it to the Olympic platform, is, is going to be remarkable. Saruj has never said that breaking shouldn't be an Olympic sport, but he still has his doubts, and he wants to be sure the roots of breaking are respected. I respect people like that, you know, that are inside and working to, 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 do, to make sure this isn't presented in an in a, in a undignified way, you know. That doesn't mean just sports versus art. I mean, it means like, how are the commentators talking about the dance? Like, as it's happening, or do they know what they're talking about? How much of the history of where this comes from is going to be presented? And are there DJs and music? What kind of music is being played? Like, the music it comes from? And even just like, is there going to be an MC hosting it? Saruj is hopeful for the future of breaking in ways that have nothing to do with Paris in 2024. He's thinking well beyond gold medals, TV ratings, and money. I mean, I think for the breaking community, it's just to continue developing the grassroots of the breaking community to uphold the principles that it stood for, knowing the history of where it comes from, upholding the principles of, you know, identity formation and, and creativity and pushing the boundaries of your body and expression and community. You know, community is a big part of it. Like this isn't a dance you just sign up for in a studio and then maybe have a, a recital or something. This is a community. You learn about yourself. You learn about others. 
and you understand that you're part of a broader legacy that goes all the way back to the Bronx. I think it's important for practitioners to remember how it got built to this point where the Olympics came knocking or not even knocking, but just swooping down on it. And, and to realize that that's where the power is. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Nikki Stein and Kelsey Albright. Tori Smith is our associate producer, and Olivia Canny is our production assistant. Additional editing from James Boo. Engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Lavino. This episode was written by Albert Chen. Special thanks to Allison Cohen and Matt Eisenstadt. Next time on Torched, we'll dive into the story of Esther Williams, the champion swimmer whose accidental success on the big screen made her an international sensation. Now her films are credited as one of the major influences in the rise of synchronized swimming. He said to her, get in the pool and swim, okay? Get across the pool. And she got in the pool and he said, I know you can swim fast, but can you swim pretty? And she said, well, I think you have to swim fast to know how to swim pretty. That's next time on Torched. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. We'll see you next time.